book of James. Series of studies in the book of James. Last week we had part one of the tussle with temptation, and uh, just uh, really got through the very first point. Although that was divided into some sub points, which uh, is what preachers are known for. But uh, uh, we talked about the blessing of enduring temptation. We looked at some instruction from Psalm 119, how God allows trials to teach us uh, to not go astray from him. Uh, God uses trials to teach us his word. God allows trials to prove that he is faithful to us. Uh, God uses our trials to motivate us to pray. Uh, God's, our trials uh, give God an opportunity to encourage us. And then we looked at two judgments. There are two key times of judgment that are yet in the future. Uh, one is the judgment for Christians, only known, are also known as the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. The other is a judgment for all unsaved people, known as the great white throne judgment. And then we looked at two reasons. Uh, one was believers are justified, and number two, believers are not punished. And then two key passages, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The other key passage was in 1 Corinthians 3.11-15. Uh, this passage spoke of the materials of our work, uh, what will happen to our works. If any man's work abides which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So what is the Lord looking for in us? What is God going to scrutinize and reward? Well, we came up with a list of a few things from God's word, but we won't go through that again uh, this morning. So let's move on to the second uh, point of uh, this uh, particular uh, section of the book of first uh, chapter of the book of James. Uh, one writer tells how as a young Christian seeking to live for God, he was much distressed by the problem of temptation. Uh, he described how he encouraged himself with the thought that someday temptation would no longer be a problem in his life. He imagined that as he grew older, he would assume a tangible form of holy respectability, which would solve all problems of temptation, that he would eventually arrive at a state where he would be free from temptations and its terrible effects. What do you think? You ever find out that that was true? Well, he found out as the years passed, there were two basic realities. One is temptation was just as strong and subtle as it was years ago when he was young. And secondly, that he was just as weak as he ever was, just, just as prone to failure. We never outlive temptation, but uh, someday, the only way the temptation is going to be gone, the trial is going to be gone, is when we're in heaven with the Lord. And what he learned should be and must be learned by every believer. It matters not how long you've been saved, temptation is as strong as ever, and we are as weak as we've ever been. I think uh, of a quote I came across, I think is excellent. 
Temptation plus opportunity equals trouble. And a person may be tempted to commit certain sin, but not have the opportunity to fulfill their temptation. On the other hand, a person may have the opportunity to commit certain uh, sin, but not be tempted. And when the two are put together, you're going to have trouble. Now here in our text in James, he speaks of temptation and trouble caused when two, the two come together. And he used the word temptation twice uh, in the previous verses and did so with the idea of trials believers face. That's verses one, or 2 and 12. Now in verse 13, he's referring to these temptation or these trials being in the sense that we often think of the word used uh, as temptation. He uses as a the word in the sense of a solicitation to do wrong. And many times the trial in our life has been a temptation. Uh, one British writer said, I can't resist, and I can resist everything but temptation. Uh, James tells us why it's important to resist temptation. Let's notice the text. Number two of our outline is blaming God is condemned. Look at verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. When it comes to temptation and sin, we are not to play the blame game. That's what Adam and Eve did. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. Genesis 3 and verse 12 it says and the man said the woman which thou gavest to me with to be with me she gave me of the tree and I did eat Eve blamed the serpent for her folly she used the same slogan that was popular back in the 1970s the devil made me do it the devil made me do it in chapter 3 verse 13 of Genesis and the Lord said unto the woman what is this that thou hast done and the woman said the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Now James speaks of trials as a definite matter in verse 2, and now he speaks of temptation as a definite experience. <clears throat> Notice again verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted with any man. Notice carefully again, he does not say if, but he says when. It's not a matter if temptation will come, but a matter of when it will come. And he speaks of trials as something experienced by every man. We see that back in verses 9 and 10. But the brother of low degree uh, rejoiced and exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass uh, he shall pass away. He's talking about the rich and the poor. Uh, he's talking about everybody in between. Every man. Verse 14 says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. He says, every man, no one is exempt from this. I think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. The word common speaks of that which is human, that which is after man. It matters not if you're young or old, rich or poor, man or woman. Temptation involves every man. Someone has stated 
you will be tempted. The kinds of temptations may change. Candies for kids, sensualities for young, riches for the middle age, and power for the aging. As long as you live, you will be tempted. Now notice more carefully here what James had to say about the presence of temptation. First of all, temptation cannot be attributed to God. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. There were some in James' day who taught that God was indirectly responsible for the existence of evil in the world. Some of the Jewish rabbis would teach what was... Uh, uh, called the evil impulse. They taught that this evil impulse was part of man's origin in his created nature. And so God would be indirectly responsible for temptation. Uh, the poet Robert Burns wrote, Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice have, has often led me wrong. But Burns seemed to suggest that God was responsible for the wild and strong passions of man, and these passions were often the target of temptation. Yet James tells us that man can say that God is responsible, but God is not responsible. James says no man uh, can say that, even though they do. They're wrong. James was saying, don't even remotely suggest that God has anything to do with your temptation. Why? Well, for one thing, God himself lacks the capacity to be tempted. God cannot be tempted. He has no vulnerability to evil. Uh, he is utterly impregnable to its onslaughts. And secondly, God does not tempt us to sin. You cannot blame God for the temptation. I've often heard those in the homosexual community say, God made me this way. To justify such a theory is to severely twist and pervert the scripture. God is not directly or indirectly responsible for temptation or the sin that results from temptation. God is not to be blamed for our sin. No man is to rationalize his sin by blaming God for it. And we're pretty good at doing this, aren't we? We have all kinds of excuses for justifying our sin problems. Here's just a short list. I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. Well, I was pressured into doing it. And it was their fault. I couldn't help it. Everybody else is doing it. But it's just a little mistake. No big deal. Besides that, nobody's perfect. And I'm just as good as the next person. And of course, the devil made me do it. You know, we can come up with all kinds of excuses for our sin. We have a choice to do what is right or wrong. And we cannot blame anyone else for our sin. And God is never to blame for our sin. We are responsible for what we, we do. We make the choices in life, and we must answer for their choices. Blaming God or anyone else for your faults or problems will not solve your problems. It will only make them worse because you never come to a solution of the problem. Notice, secondly, temptation cannot be avoided by man. 
Again, it says, every man experiences temptation. Why? James speaks of the desires that we have. He speaks of lust. When we hear or use that word, we usually uh, associate it with illicit desires. The word James uses here refers to a deep, strong desire or a longing of any kind, good or bad. And it's true that God created within man certain desires. We do thirst. We hunger. Now those are God-given desires. We have a desire to be happy. We are attracted to the opposite sex. God made us that way. He put within us this attraction or this desire. And all these are God-given desires. They're not bad desires, but they're good desires. But with the entrance of sin, there arose a system that seeks to get us to fulfill those desires in a way that God never intended to be fulfilled. I read about what are called export rejects. Uh, being a history uh, uh, teacher, uh, read about World War II quite a bit, and, and uh, there were what was called uh, export regions. In a drive to boost the economy and build export consumer goods such as uh, china and pottery and uh, cloth, uh, and that, those things were sent abroad. The people of Britain never saw these goods. They were all sent overseas, and yet they could buy what they were, were called export rejects. They were all sent, uh, uh, or the object was, wasn't good enough to be sent overseas because it was faulty in manufacture. And so it was released in the home market. The British people bought these export rejects, and they paid a high price to obtain them. Now, the fulfillment of, you say, what's that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, the fulfillment of God-given desires outside of God's plan is accepted as second-rate. Second-rate fulfillment or faulty products. And we shall see that if we get them at a very high price, and we must, we must all understand that if we all have desires, we all have longings, James speaks of us, uh, of our own lusts. One thing may be a temptation to one person, but it's not a problem for someone else. What is a problem to you may not be a problem for me. What is a problem to me may not be a problem to you. They are our own lusts. I heard about three preachers talking over lunch. One suggested they confess their sins one to another. One said, well, that's a good idea. I'll go first. I hate to admit it, but I take an occasional drink. The second spoke up and says, I don't want others to know about it, but I like to gamble. They both looked at the third preacher and said, we've confessed our sins, now it's your turn. And the third one said, my sin is gossip, and I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> What I'm saying is we all have our own lusts. There are those with particular problem areas of specific temptations, and we all have to deal with them personally. In 1 John 2 and verse 16, it says, For uh, 
there, uh, we're given a trinity of temptation. He speaks of the lust of the flesh, described a, a consuming passion to do something. Secondly, he speaks of the lust of the eyes. He describes a consuming passion to have something. And then he speaks of the pride of life, which is a consuming passion to be someone. And all temptation could be placed into one or all of these categories. They all describe a world system that is constantly pulling us to fulfill these longings we've been given by God. But we've been tempted to fulfill these longings outside of his plan. You understand what I'm saying? These temptations seek to get us to abuse God. Even the, the God-given longings that he's given to us. Again, the point is no one is immune to it. Someone said the words of the Lord in John 3, 6 are just as true today. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And it will always be flesh. I may work on the flesh. I may seek to improve it. I may try to educate it. I may seek to add many social graces to its basic content. But when all is said and done, it's still the flesh. What was he saying? No matter who or what or when temptation is present and constant force to be reckoned with, we cannot blame God. Secondly, notice the bait of temptation. Now we're talking. Talking about bait. Verse 14 again. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We're not only reminded of the presence of temptation, but we also see the process here. Uh, we see how temptation works, how we are tempted. James uses the picture of a hunter or a fisherman to describe the process of temptation. You all know where my hunting and fishing lies. I hunt for my ball in the rough and I fish it out of the water when it goes in the water. He's talking about the hunter and the fisherman here. He speaks of being drawn away and being enticed. He has spoken of lust and now he speaks of lures. He speaks, first of all, luring the believer away. We call this entrapment. The words drawn away speak of being snared in a trap. Picture is that of a hunter setting a baited trap away in our new home in my garage. I found a trap. Don't know what to do with it, but I, I found a trap hanging on the wall there. It's a steel trap. And steel traps can be alarming rather than attractive to hunting prey. So to draw the prey into the trap, the hunter puts something inside the trap to appeal to the desires of the animal and lures them away from their course and their trap. By the way, do you know my wife is a trapper? This is her trap, or one like hers. They work. She traps brown squirrels. Actually teaches them how to swim. Some of you know what that means. You got two of them this week already. This is our first week there. But it's a trap. That peanut butter is enticing to those ground squirrels. They get on that can and they try to stay on there and they fall off into a bucket of water. 
when they either learn to swim or they don't. But you know, understanding temptation is realized that the pull of our flesh and the world, uh, not as a goal of getting us to fulfill our desires, but the ultimate goal is pulling us away, drawing us away from God. We, as believers, seek to serve God, honor and love Him, yet the world and the flesh is continually seeking to draw us away from and interrupt our fellowship with God. That's the aim and the objective of temptation. But notice that we also see luring the believer in. Luring the believer in. That's called enticement. The word entice is a fishing term that speaks of baiting the hook. And the fisherman knows that a bare hook will not be very attractive to a fish. So he puts a nice juicy worm on the end of that fish or his favorite uh, uh, lure. And when Mr. Fish comes swimming along and the bait is so attractive he can't resist it, he appeals strongly to his desires, he's drawn away, he's drawn in. He takes the bait. The bait. In the bait there's a hook. Temptation is not only a process of being drawn away from God, but being drawn into sin. Uh, I remind you that the devil is a pro at fishing. He knows the kind of bait to use for each one of us. He's very skillful in knowing what appeals to our desires. He knows what to put in the trap or put on the hook to draw us away and to draw us in. Someone gave this illustration. He said, have you ever fooled around with a piano? Open the top, press the loud pedal, then sing a note into the piano as loudly as you can, and stop and listen. You will hear at least one chord vibrating in response to the note you sang. You sing, and a string on the piano picks up your voice and plays it back. You're helping? Try it next time. It won't work on that kind of piano. Only on that kind. The picture of temptation. Satan calls you and you vibrate. He goes on to say that the appropriate response is not to vibrate to the voice of the devil, but to release the loud pedal and close the top of the piano. The devil's bait is always tempting, but we must never forget the price of taking the bait. Before we go on to the third one, I just wanted to share this picture with you of our evangelist from a few weeks ago. Last week he went fishing. He did very well. But he was very deceptive. Can you imagine how deceptive evangelist? I'm sure he put a worm on that hook and he baited that hook. Good fishermen, I guess, are that way, right? And he wanted to fish when he was up here, but of course, he doesn't do my kind of fishing, so we didn't go fishing. I'm glad he got to go fishing. But there's a third thing that James speaks of in our text, and notice the birth of sin. Roman number four. We read in verse 15. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James describes the product or the end result of yielding to temptation. Did you notice, first of all, the conception of sin. The word conceived. The word that uh, we use in describing a woman 
conceiving a child. And up to this point, James has been describing someone being tempted. The devil has baited his hook. He has, uh, his traps are baited to entice us. At this point, no sin has been committed. It's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin when we yield to temptation. And this conception speaks of a person yielding to temptation in their heart and mind. And that there is that moment when the will joins the desire, and at this moment, sin is only conceived. What is this conception? Well, a person begins to think about it, begins to imagine it, and then within the decision uh, is made to yield. And it's what someone described as an unholy marriage between desire and opportunity, inclination and incitement. I think David and his sin of adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, we read in verse 2 there, he saw, or did he see? He saw a naked woman bathing. That was a temptation. At that point, he could have turned away and he could have had no more thought about it. But we read in verse 3, David sent and inquired. It was at that moment that sin was conceived. And David began to think about the woman he saw. And whenever sin is conceived, it's only a matter of time that there will be a birth of sin. We read in verse 4 of 2 Samuel 11 that David took her. He yielded first in his heart and mind, and it was not long before he was uh, con had, before what was conceived was born. Moody said, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can't keep it from building a nest in your head. I will add to that, if you have here. Okay. But uh, we may not be able to avoid temptation, but we can prevent its conception. Not only see the conception of sin, but the conclusion of sin. We see that once sin is conceived, it bringeth forth. The words literally mean ceases to be pregnant. Uh, there is a birth that I have been describing. What is the result of this birth? When the sin has been yielded to, James tells us the fruit and result of death. Now, he's not talking about physical death. It's more like a describing stillborn. Stillborn. Sin never produces what it claims it will or what you think it will. Sin always paints a pretty picture. It always tells you that it'll make you happy. Or to put it in the words, other words, sin will tell you that it will birth, give birth to joy and happiness, but sin always produces a stillbirth. You yield to that which you think will fulfill your desires, but will end up in a stillborn experience. The word death literally means separation. You'll find yourself separated from God. And the things of God, you find yourself separated from real joy and happiness. That brings us to verse 16, which is the brethren's warning. Verse 16, he says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Now, it's no wonder what James says in verse 16 do not err. The word means don't be pulled away. 
James is telling us not to let Satan's bait pull us away. As believers, we should always remember that temptation plus opportunity equals trouble. The word error here comes from the Greek word, which means to cause to stray from the truth, to lead astray from the error into error or sin, to wander or to deceive. We find the same uh, in other familiar verses in the Bible. Galatians 6 and verse 7 says, Be not deceived. There's the word right there. Very similar to the word error. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 1 John 2.26, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. That's the word in that verse. In 1 Peter 2.25, For we, are, we were as sheep going astray. Those two words make up that same word. But now return unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. So there are results of that sin. And he is warning believers, brethren, concerning this. Now, when it comes to your tussle with temptation, as we said in our title, God does not want you to lose the battle by being deceived by the temptation. He wants you to have full understanding of the temptation, lest we be swept away by it. So in closing, let me just give you three facts concerning overcoming sin. Some of this kind of looks ahead to this chapter, but I believe it's appropriate to at least mention it here. First of all, there's God's judgment. That is looking ahead. Again, in verses 14 through 16, we talked about this last time, how we have an appointment with God where we're going to give an account of how we lived our lives for the Lord. We need to consider our desire it speaks of our emotion. We need to consider deception. That speaks of our intellect. We need to consider disobedience. That has to do with our will or the making of choices. And then we consider death. That speaks of judgment. So there's God's judgment looking ahead. There's also God's goodness. That's looking around. Verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh from the Father of lights, with whom there is no with whom is no variable, variableness, neither shadow of turning. God gives only good gifts. And the way he gives is good. He gives continually or constantly, and he does not change. So we have God's judgment looking ahead. We have God's goodness looking around. And then thirdly we have our new nature and that's looking within. Look at verse 18. Of his own will began he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When we get saved we are given a new nature. It's divine. It's from God. It's not natural. There's graciousness there. It's not something we deserve. And it comes through God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not fiction we're talking about. This is real. And it's the best. It's the finest. It cannot be improved. <coughs> so again, 
even relating to our recent study of Ephesians, consider the armor which God provides in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Remember, we do not win by virtue of any power in ourselves. We are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And the power which works in us mightily to enable us to triumph is the same energy of the Holy Spirit which made the resurrection of Christ possible. So you see, we can be more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 